This morning, I'm going to do something a bit different. It says the Gospel of Mark on the screen there. And uh, what I'm going to preach today pertains to what we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark, but it's not from the Gospel of Mark. It is from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. So if you'd take your copy of God's Word and join me in turning to Philippians 4, chapter chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, that's, that's where we'll be, and I, I'm hopefully in the way of introduction going to explain why that is. Over the last uh, several weeks, Mark has confronted us with what I would call the paradox of the Christian life. On the one hand, the power and the promise of God do not always seem consistent with our present reality. You ever, you ever live there? You read about this God in the scriptures, and yet your present reality often seems to be uh, different or divergent from the reality that you read that, that we encounter in the Word of God. We've got Jesus on the sea, and he calms the storm. He confronts a demoniac, and he tells him to come out. And wherever Jesus goes, wherever the authority and the power of Jesus is, there's victory. The Lord we serve has absolute power over nature. He's victorious over Satan and his demons. But on the other hand, the kingdom only comes home to hearts that have good soil. And it's like a mustard seed. Right now it's seemingly small and insignificant and overlooked. Only later will we realize the full magnitude of what God is doing in the world. Building his kingdom through the faithfulness of his son to go to the cross for us. And the faithfulness now of the church to go to the cross for a lost and dying world, to take up our cross and die daily. So how is it in a broken world that we can maintain a kingdom perspective and a confident kingdom outlook in the face of the brokenness and disappointments that we face in our world? In a, in a few moments from now, I'm going to invite you to pray. I'm going to invite you to respond to who God is in the face of your disappointments and your despair and your distractions by volunteering to be prayed for and prayed over. The invitation to our message today will be to call on this God who is powerful. You see, the young church at Philippi was facing similar questions. Paul was in prison and his fate was undetermined. And the church encountered persistent opposition to the gospel. So Paul gives them resources to cope with their own anxiety about his fate and with their own fate as believers in a society that is hostile to their commitment to Christ. Do you ever feel like you live in a world that is hostile to your commitment to Christ? How is it that you respond? Toward the end of his letter, Paul provides some familiar commands for us. I believe commands that we need to be exercising as a local body and in our individual lives because of who God is. Commands that allow various trials that we encounter in this life to produce with us within us endurance James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 and they produce that endurance if we will heed those commands so would you hear now the word of God Philippians chapter 4 beginning in verse 4 a verse no doubt many of you have memorized rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, help us to access the peace that is you this morning by being reminded of the commands that you've given us in your word. 
by being able to move beyond the immediate into the eternal as we fix our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe briefly this morning that this text shows us three things that we can do to be guarded by God's all-surpassing peace. Do you need that this morning? Do you need God's all-surpassing peace? What a promise that we can have the peace of God. There's no anxiety in God. He knows full well what's going on today, tomorrow, and forever. But to be guarded by the peace that is in God and that is God himself, we must do three things. This text shows us. First, we must rejoice in the Lord always. Second, we must let our gentleness be known to all. And finally, we must be anxious in nothing but pray to God in everything. I submit to you, church, this is a passage of familiar verses, but they are infrequently applied. It's not enough for them to be familiar to our mind. They must be frequently applied in our lives. We must first rejoice in the Lord always. Paul concludes his letter by encouraging the Philippians to rejoice. It's a command that's throughout his book. When considering Paul's adversity, they are to rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 18. When Epaphroditus, who is one of the Philippians, returns to Philippi after being away from them for a long time, in 2.28, they must rejoice when faced with opposition to the gospel in chapter 3 verse 1 they must rejoice and now Paul commands us in chapter 4 verse 4 keep on rejoicing in the Lord always I will say it again keep on rejoicing twice in one verse he commands us to continually rejoice the word rejoice means to be exceedingly glad it means to thrive it's the sort of thing that one does to celebrate a victory unfortunately for Highlanders, Hokies, and Who's, we don't know what that means. But it's that jubilation that you feel when there is victory. It's not a banner in a gym. It's not a flag on a pole. It's a king on a cross who came and walked and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. And on the third day, he defeated death in the grave and said, All who come unto me, cast your cares on me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, not just now, but forever, because I've taken care of you forever. The Christian life, then, is not one of perpetual complaining and nagging and despair, but of rejoicing. Are you here this morning? Perpetual rejoicing is impossible for the world. Impossible. And it is only possible for us because we have come to know the perpetual source of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. You see, knowing and belonging to Jesus who has rescued us from death is the subject and the source of our joy. There's something that eclipses what is making you desperate and concerned and despairing, and it is the everlasting life that God has secured for you. In verse 3, Paul has just mentioned the names of those who belong in the book of life, and that is reason to rejoice. Jesus said to his disciples after they go out on a mission trip and they cast out demons and demons are falling down, he says to them, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Don't rejoice in the momentary. Don't rejoice in the temporary. Don't live your life from one celebration to the next being defeated because you don't have something to party about today. Rejoice that day after day after day, it is finished. It is done. My sin has been nailed to the the cross if I have trusted in him and his life is mine. There is your rejoicing. 
You see, even in the face of challenging circumstances and unexpected obstacles, we must rejoice in true life through our union with Christ. Now, I want to make a quick observation about this word in verse 4 called always. It is the Greek word meaning always. You see, the only way to Rejoice always is to have a reason and a source of rejoicing that does not depend upon your circumstances. If your life is driven by your circumstances, you can't rejoice always. Even kings and rich people are going to have a bad day. It's it's something that eclipses our circumstances. It's to know and be known by God and to know that He is good. Even in times of trial and hardship and disappointment and loss and tribulation and setback, it's to be able to look to the cross and know that He is good. When Paul writes the book of Philippians, he's in prison awaiting trial and he doesn't know its outcome and he has joy. He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Paul and Silas brought the gospel to Philippi, do you remember what happened? They were beaten and in prison, and there in the jail cell, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Now, it's important to point out, church, that Paul is not asking us to deny the pain of our present circumstances. We're not some sort of people living in the sky and don't, not actually living in the real world. Rather, he's telling us to be fortified with joy through our present circumstances. That's what gets the world's attention. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, Paul describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What is it that you are facing right now that is stealing your joy? What storm are you going through that you're looking at more than you are looking to the Savior who went to the cross for you? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Paul often tells us that some of the best opportunities for growth in the things of God don't come when we're on top of the mountain, but they come when we are able to rejoice not because of our circumstances, but in spite of them. You see, it's in those times that the Spirit most easily brings forth His fruit in our lives. Why? Because the kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking or our comforts, Romans 14, 7 tells us, but in righteousness and peace and joy. How? In the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul repeats himself. He doesn't just say, keep on rejoicing always in the Lord, which would have been enough. He then says, for anybody who thinks I'm a crazy guy, For anybody who thinks this command to keep on rejoicing always is insanity, then he says, I'll say it again. Keep on rejoicing. So here's your assignment this week, church. Every time somebody complains at your workplace in your at a cube or somebody cuts you off or you're even in your home this week, find something to rejoice about. Point it back to the gospel. Look to the cross of Christ and find a reason to speak the truth that there is a reason to rejoice always. But secondly, we don't just rejoice always. We must also let our gentleness be known to all people. The promise of verse 5 is that the Lord produces within the heart of a believer a gentleness that we can make known even to people who are opposed to us. 
In the Old Testament, gentleness refers to God's gracious rule and His willingness to forgive even His enemies if they will turn to Him. When applied to the church, the word signifies a humble, patient steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred or malice, trusting God in spite of it all. i got to tell you, church, this is only possible if you're living in the gospel. In 2010, Forbes magazine said, We are no longer the United States of America. We are the United States of anger. In 2016, a Time magazine column said, The easiest thing you'll do all day is get ticked off at something. Someone cuts you off in traffic, ticked off. Guy in front of you at Starbucks needs his entire order remade because his mocha half-calf double frap had the wrong number of espresso shots in it, even though you know full well he can't taste the difference exceedingly ticked off. And then he says this, we're all that way. And that's a problem. Anger is the lazy person's emotion. It's quick. It's binary. And it is delicious. And more and more, we are gorging on it. You see, too often, church, we have been sucked into the world's anger rather than putting the power of Christ on display. Gentleness is not weakness, church. It is the sign of the overwhelming satisfaction of belonging to Jesus. Whatever's swirling about, whatever anger you have... I can display gentleness because I belong to Jesus and I'm looking not to the storm but to the Savior in the middle of the storm. I'm not going to be distracted by the temporary when I belong to the one who is eternal. The Lord is near. How is it that we can be gentle? The Lord is near. And the reason we want our gentleness to be known to everyone is His nearness. Now it's interesting, the nearness of the Lord can refer either to the fact that he's near to his people or that his coming is near. In other words, his ultimate judgment is near. So which is it that motivates our desire for the gentleness of Christ to be known? I submit to you it means both things. It means that Jesus is at hand right now, church. That he is with us through the indwelling presence and power of his Holy Spirit and he knows full well how his church is responding to what God enables us to do in the world. And it is also true that He will come quickly. He will come to judge the quick and the dead. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And He is coming as a judge. And the world needs to see Christ in the world through the church, living out the gentleness of God in the world, not responding on Facebook just like the world does. Let me blow you up. That that was helpful. You see... The word to be known to all men means to be known experientially. It's not about the head knowledge that God is trying to communicate through the way you respond to the adversity of the world. He wants the world to encounter the difference in the church that is fundamentally divergent from the way the world responds to adversity. That they might know that there is something fundamentally different about the argument that I have with a Christian than the one that I have with a lost person. Is that true of you? When, when people engage you in conversation, whether it's politics or government or 
guns or tobacco or alcohol or whatever the issue of the day is, can a lost person walk away from their discussion with you, even though you disagree, and say the way they disagreed with me was fundamentally different than anyone else I've ever disagreed with? Is your gentleness evident to all? You see, Paul is driving at both truths. The Lord is near to to his church, and we must be gentle with one another in the church, especially when dealing with people who are causing a lack of unity and diverting our attention from the mission. We must handle them with God's grace, and also we must be gentle toward the world. We're commanded to respond to disagreements with the world in a way that proves that knowing him is greater brings greater satisfaction than winning the argument. Do you you want to win a soul or do you want to win an argument? In other words, the Philippians are to adopt an unabrasive spirit under provocation because their Lord is coming to vindicate their cause. We don't need to defend the rightness of our cause to the world. Jesus will take care of that in His time. In other words, our disposition is our defense. However... Making our gentleness known does not mean that we compromise the message of the gospel. As O'Brien writes, their gentle response is not due to weakness, nor to an unwillingness to stand their ground. There are issues swirling about in our world that are being promulgated through Hollywood and the movies and the news, and we must be aware, church. We must be aware, parents and grandparents. We must say to our kids, we're not going to see that movie, or we are going to see that movie, and then we're going to talk about why that movie promulgates and pushes a worldview that is entirely opposite of the gospel, but we can do it with gentleness. We know that Paul isn't saying never push back on the truth because of the way he handles himself in the church. In 2 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, he says, Paul, I I myself, Paul, I urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, that I won't have to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. In other words, there's some knuckleheads in the church who are threatening to derail the mission. And Paul says, I might have to get a little snappy with you. Gentleness is not weak compromise. It is the constant desire that all men would come to know the truth. And it's a commitment to prove the power of God's truth by living in such a way that the people that we encounter would observe our lives and come to find that being reconciled with God on His terms is always preferable to the alternative. You see, there's great power in the ability to not be personally offended and respond in anger when the world attacks. Some of us make a habit out of being offended. I mean, we wouldn't know what to do with our lives if we didn't have Facebook as as an opportunity to make us offended. Move on. Get over it. You see... The way when the church responds as Christ would respond, those are the moments that people are most likely to encounter the reality of the person of Christ. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. He's coming in judgment. Would you say the world knows the church for her gentleness right now? Are you known for your gentleness even in the face of adversity? Or are you a hothead? Here's the assignment this week. 
apologize to someone you've interacted with in a way that your desire to be right or be heard kept you back from demonstrating the gentleness of Christ even though you were right. Don't apologize for being right. Apologize for the way in which you were right. And finally, Paul says we must not be anxious in anything, but pray to God in all things. Why would we be gentle in the face of opposition? Who, who do we belong to? We belong to the Lord who is near and He wins. So if we walk away in disagreement, but I belong to the winner, then I don't have to stand here and beat you over the head. God's going to win. And finally, we must not be anxious in anything, but pray to God in all things. But Paul, how do I stop worrying? I mean, if I wasn't worrying, would I still be alive? Are you there? Don't, don't I have to be doing something with this crazy mind of mine? Well, yes, Paul would say. And Paul shows us that the way to be anxious about nothing is to be constantly prayerful about everything. The word anxious can refer to a good and godly concern, as it does in Philippians 2.20, but here it describes unreasonable anxiety, which arises in the one who is full of cares, especially about the future, and their mind is constantly distracted. If anxiety characterizes the inner life of those who don't belong to Jesus in a broken world, prayer characterizes the inner life of those who do belong to Christ who is Lord of the broken world. The opposite of anxiety is prayer. Paul commands the church, don't worry about anything. Keep on not worrying about anything. And he uses the present tense, which implies that they are worrying. And Paul says, stop it. You want some good biblical counseling about the worry in your life? Stop it. Well, I can't, Pastor. You just don't know what's going on in my life. No, I don't. But Paul says the way the Christian deals with anxieties in the Christian life is we pray. And we pray until we encounter the presence of Christ in prayer and we let our anxieties fuel our praying until we see our anxieties as nothing compared to the God that we serve. Be anxious in nothing but pray in all things. There are no exceptions to this. Nothing. Everything. We must let our prayers be as specific as our anxieties. You say, well, I can get a worry that leads me to another worry that leads me to another worry. And the next thing I know, I'm in this cycle of worry. We'll turn the cycle of worry into a cycle of prayer. Every contingency, God's Lord over it. He's already died for you and buried it and taken care of it. Take it to the Lord in prayer. The way we obey the command not to worry is we obey the second command. We must continually make our requests known to God. God knows your mind better than you do, and he's given you a way to deal with the anxieties you face. It's called prayer. Paul describes prayer in three, three ways in one verse. First, he uses the word prayer, which refers to what the Philippians ask of God on their own account, especially from circumstances that cause 
anxiety. Supplication is a synonym for prayer that focuses on the sense of need. Requests emphasizes the very specific things that we desire from God. In all things, here's what Paul is saying. In all things that bring anxiety, we bring all kinds of prayer to God. Some of you are worried about if you prayed right. Paul says just start praying. Paul commands us to make our request known to God, not because he does not already know what we will ask, but because this is the way we humbly cast our cares upon him. You see, prayer is how you stop trying to manage the storm and you start surrendering to the Savior who is Lord over the storm. You can't do it unless you call on him in prayer. Paul knows focusing on our circumstances can cause us to lose sight of the God that we serve. The immediacy of the storm, church, can drive out our intimacy with the Savior. So our prayers must be offered how? With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. You say, well, Pastor, I try to pray all the time and I just miss it. Here's, Here's why. Because we miss these two words. With thanksgiving. You see, the point is not that we just begin our prayer with a quick little thank you to God and then we move into our laundry list of everything we need. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about an overall corporate climate of thanksgiving. He's writing to the entire church. The sense of this word is not just our private prayers, but a public focus on thankfulness for the gospel that drives who we are week after week after week. Aren't you thankful for what Jesus has done for you? Aren't you thankful that he left heaven and he became a man and he lived a life you didn't live and died a death you should have died and he hung on the cross for you and he said, it is finished, it is done, that he came and he erased the sins which were against you. And Romans 8, 1 says, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when you begin to fix your mind on what God has done for you through Christ and the gospel, it begins to eliminate the anxiety even before you begin to pray because you get a right perspective on who you are and who God is the way that we counteract the anxiety that comes from the immediate is with real thankfulness for life everlasting from the God who is eternal and I submit to you church we're not there yet when we, when we really get there and what characterizes who we are when we come and we park on Sunday and we walk in the doors on Sunday and we come on Wednesday night and we go to Wednesday night meals, what characterizes our life is this welling up thankfulness within us. It will change how we worship. It will change how we sing. It will change how we greet one another. It will permeate our lives to the point that a month from now and two months from now, the anxieties that you came in with today, you won't be able to remember what they are three months from now because you're so saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means in your life. When we compare our present anxieties to what God has already done for us in Christ, the anxieties begin to melt away even as we begin to make our requests. Thankfulness is the frame of our request. It frames it in the light of the undeserved grace we've already received and it expresses our utter dependence upon Christ and a willingness to submit ourselves to God's will no matter what it costs us. God, if you ask me to go through this storm, so be it. Whatever you ask of me as a husband or a father or an employee or a boss, you have bought me with your blood and I can trust you and I am humbly yours whether I have to go through the storm or not. You see, when we come to Christ in prayer like that, the peace of God is our defense. The peace of God will guard you. 
It will guard you. No matter what you face, it will stand guard over His church when we come to Him with thanksgiving. This is a military term. It's used of a cadre of soldiers standing watch over a city. And you say, church, you say, Pastor, that's my mind with anxiety this morning. It's like a bustling city of anxiety. There's just anxiety moving all around in my head. God says, when you come to Him with thanksgiving for the gospel and you make your request known to Him over and over again, then God will come and guard your mind. You see, God's peace is always greater than our circumstances. It literally rises above all mind or surpasses all thought. God's peace does not work by making the source of your anxieties go away. Hello, church. Listen. God's peace does not work by making the source of your anxieties go away. It works by making your connection with Christ more real than the connection with your circumstances. There is no anxiety in God. When we pray, there's, it's not as though all the things that drove us to pray suddenly magically disappear. But there is a reality that is infinitely greater than our present troubles, and that is the presence of Christ, who Himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.12. You see, as we're reminded with our union with Jesus and the confident hope we have in Him, God's peace guards our hearts and our minds, our inner life, what we think, how we feel, and we are free to lift our eyes from the immediate and to take delight in the gospel. So church, if we're going to walk with Jesus through the storm, we've got to get back to rejoicing. We've got to let Him turn that frown upside down, and the only way we can do that is if we move beyond the immediate and fix our eyes on Jesus who is eternal. We've got to stop being angry. Angry is easy. We've got to recheck how we engage with the world and say, are we showing the gentleness of Christ that proves that we belong to somebody who's victorious anyway? And then the last thing we've got to do is we've got to admit that we face some anxieties in this world that often we, we succumb to the immediate rather than do the eternal. And we need to go to God in prayer. And so this morning, the way I want to ask you to respond is by allowing, I've asked Brother John to pray for us, and then I'm going to close us in prayer. And there's John Davis, our, our chairman of deacons. There's, there's four categories we want to pray for. And if you don't fit in one of these categories this morning, you're a liar. How about that? Just, just as a heads up, all right? So the, the, the first category we're going to pray for is the defeated. Some of you here this morning, you heard the sermon, you know that it's right, but you have not surrendered to Christ in a long time. You're trapped in a pattern of sin, and you know that God's peace is on the other side of repentance, and you need to surrender your life to Him afresh and let God get the victory in your life. You say, I I'm one of the defeated. Some of you here this morning are discouraged or doubting or distracted. All you see around you is the storm. You hear a sermon like this, you get motivated, you leave, and you walk right back into the storm, and by Monday morning the storm has consumed your life and you've lost an eternal perspective on life. Others of you are desperate. You've got a son or a daughter or a granddaughter or a great-granddaughter or a great-grandson, and they're addicted to drugs. They've they professed faith when they were 10, but they never walked and lived the life, and you're concerned about their eternity, and you're desperate 
that God would rescue their soul and lead them to walk in faithfulness and be a part of a local church, whether it's in Roanoke or wherever they live, but you're desperate to see God move in their life. Whether it's a husband or even an ex-spouse or a child, there's somebody, a neighbor, that you're hungry for God to move in their life. And you, <laughs> there are times that it consumes you. And you want to take it to God in prayer this morning. And finally, there are the disconnected. There's people all around North Roanoke Baptist Church this morning that are totally oblivious to the fact that God came in the person of Christ and did for them what they could not do for themselves. And Easter's on the way. And my prayer is that Palm Sunday and Easter, that we would see disconnected people come to our campus and encounter the saving love of God in Christ Jesus and that their lives would be forever changed. So I don't know where you are this morning or how you might want to respond, but we're going gonna, gonna to ask Martha, if you don't mind, to come play for us. Can you play? And we're just going to take a, a few moments to pray. We're going to apply verse 6 and 7. Whatever you're anxious about this morning, I want to invite you to pray and to be prayed over as we respond to the grace of God who allows us to communicate with Him. So if you're defeated this morning, we invite you to come and stand at the altar. We invite you to stand where you are. If you are discouraged or doubting or distracted, we invite you to come stand at the altar or to stand, not, not, you don't have to wait, or to stand where you are. If you are desperate for God to move in your family members, we invite you to stand where you are or to stand at the altar. And if you are prayerful for the disconnected all around us who don't know God, we invite you to stand as we pray for those who need to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Whoever it is, that needs prayer, as Martha plays, we invite you to pray this morning.